Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1-2. Welcome to True Magic, the podcast where we are learning to do spiritual service with our physical bodies by learning about the spiritual meaning encoded into the physical forms of creation. Most of the episodes of True Magic will be grouped into seasons around a common theme, as we have already said. Season 1 is about the meaning of clothing, but we'll also sometimes be releasing standalone episodes that deal with more foundational ideas. This Keystone content isn't confined to one theme, but really undergirds everything that we're talking about. This is one of these episodes. And there won't be too many of them, because we want the emphasis of True Magic to be highly practical, but sometimes you need someone to explain the theoretical foundations. And sometimes you can't do that in a normal episode because the content will be too easily missed if someone skips it. Or sometimes you're a theology or symbolism nerd, and you just want to hear someone go on about these things to expand your mind a bit and give you a bit of grounding for your own practice. This episode is the first of our Keystone content. I haven't planned out any others, but there will no doubt be more. And in it, I'm going to briefly explain seven things that True Magic takes for granted. These are like axioms or presuppositions or foundational principles, which are essential for understanding God's creation and our place in it, but seem completely insane to the modern mind. What we're trying to do with True Magic is something that truly doesn't make sense to many people today, even within the Christian world. So let me try to explain these key ideas. They'll probably sound nuts at first blush, but... Each one is also quite easy to understand and accept if you just think through the examples that I'll give. The real problem is actually not that any of this stuff is really hard to understand, but rather that it requires a huge mental adjustment. It's really a problem of imagination rather than a problem of reason. And this is because the way that we have all learned to think is deeply out of kilter with the world as God actually made it. So let's begin. Axiom 1. Physical things participate in spiritual patterns. Now, if this sounds like gobbledygook to you, just keep listening. It'll make sense as I explain. What I mean is, the created world is symbolic. The material form of stuff gives physical expression to spiritual realities. I think that we talked about this sufficiently last time that you probably understand what I'm getting at already. But... What I want to do is get into your head a very important and key definition that will be helpful to you as you're listening to episodes in the future. Here it is. A symbol is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. A symbol is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. Now this can sound quite alarming to modern ears, but it's actually something that we all really take for granted. And here's a simple example from scripture. Both life and light are spiritual realities that existed in the sun before the world began. You know this. John 1.9 and 8.12 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. So when God said in Genesis 1.3, Let there be light. And there was light. That light was a physical expression of the spiritual reality that already existed eternally in the sun. The light that we see is a symbol of the light that we cannot see. Photons participate in, as it were, the spiritual pattern of light. 
which is why they are the way they are. As we talked about in the last episode, if you think about what they do, they illuminate, they warm, they can dazzle or even destroy. Or you can think about their physics. They are mysterious, they are both particle and wave, and they do not experience the passage of time. These are all fitting and necessary properties of a physical thing that participates in and reveals to us the spiritual pattern of light. Or, when God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly over the earth in the open firmament of heaven, that's Genesis 1.20, creatures with physical life came into being, participating in, embodying, giving physical expression to the spiritual pattern of life that already existed in God himself. Pretty much everything in true magic is just working out the implications of this. The implications are surprisingly deep. They are often weird, and sometimes they are deep weird. Axiom 2. Physical things, therefore, have meaning. In other words, physical things are the way they are because that means something. This is just a natural conclusion from axiom number 1. There are no mere empirical facts, as we tend to assume. Everything participates in some kind of spiritual pattern. And each pattern manifests physically in a fitting way, a way that couldn't be otherwise given the pattern that the thing is participating in. The form follows the pattern. For example, consider our own bodies. God could have made us to go on our bellies, theoretically. He could have given us eyes in the backs of our heads. He could have made us androgynous. But being made to stand upright means something. And lying down when we lose consciousness means something too. Having a blind spot behind us means something. Being male and female means something. Our physical form is therefore the only fitting form for the spiritual reality of what we are. Obviously we can't discern every meaning of every fact, and that isn't the purpose of true magic, but we must believe that facts do mean things, which is completely foreign to the modern mind, where many or most physical facts, the forms of things, have no deeper spiritual import. Even many professing believers rail against seeing spiritual meaning in created things. I think I need to briefly back up that claim, so let me get controversial for a second. Think of how many Christians today hate the idea of women veiling in worship. They claim that it is a symbol that has lost its meaning in the modern world, and yet they also say that it is humiliating. Now, how can it be simultaneously meaningless and humiliating? Or think about how many Christians today use grape juice instead of wine in the Lord's Supper. Many will argue against wine because it can make you drunk. But what if the fact that it can make you drunk is part of why Jesus chose it in the first place? Jesus did not intend for us to become drunk, of course, but the effects of wine are not irrelevant nor even problematic to the institution of the supper. On the contrary, they are crucial to it because they mean something, something presumably connected to why Jesus chose wine. Clothing and food will be our chief focuses in the first two seasons of True Magic, so if these examples bother you, you have much to look forward to. Axiom 3. We participate in the same spiritual patterns at different levels. Paul illustrates this well in Ephesians 5, 31-32, where he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the church. The marriage covenant, and especially its physical one-fleshness, are a physical expression of the mystical union between Christ and the church. 
At a basic mundane level, every married couple participates in the spiritual pattern of one togetherness. I don't mean that sex is a spiritual or even religious act, but I do mean that sex means something. It embodies a relationship between two people, and that relationship also means something. It embodies the relationship between Christ and the church. So when a Christian couple has sex, they are participating in the same spiritual pattern of one togetherness as when they are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, and when they are covenantally bound to a church, and ultimately when they stand as one body with the saints in eternity and experience the beatific vision. Another foundational example of a layered pattern is meal sharing. In 1 Corinthians 10.17, Paul says, We who are many are one bread, one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There is a spiritual pattern of bread in which the loaf we eat participates. Yet we ourselves participate in the pattern of bread also at a higher level, just as we are individually bodies and corporately a body also. These patterns are fractal. The pattern of bread participates in the larger pattern of meal sharing, and this is a pattern that we participate in every day when we eat with our families. Yet we also participate in it at a higher level during the Lord's Supper. In one sense, the Lord's Supper gathers up the daily meal pattern into a greater and more elevated form, just as the marriage supper of the Lamb will gather up every Lord's Supper into a still greater and more elevated form. Yet it would be foolish to think that this makes our daily dinners less important, as if they only existed for the sake of the Lord's Supper, which only existed for the sake of the marriage supper. No, even though the Lord's Supper gathers up our dinners, its pattern flows down to them as well. It is because the lesser reality participates in the greater that the lesser matters at all. Think of it this way. And again, I choose my example to show how deeply connected many patterns are, like bread and bodies. It is symbolism all the way down. The body is not less important than the head, because the head is at the top. For if there were no body, there would be no top for the head to be at. Everything the head has flows down to the body, and the head is the ordering principle of the body, providing vision and direction, but everything the body has is also gathered up into the head. The body is the outworking principle of the head, providing power and capacity. Axiom 4. There is an order of being that flows down from God. Let's apply this at the cosmic level. Heaven is the head, earth is the body. And within that hierarchy, there are more hierarchies. God made us a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8.5 in Hebrews 2.7 tells us that. And he made us a little higher than the animals, Psalm 8.6-8. The angels are closer to God and participate more directly in the spiritual realities that find their beginning in him, yet the angels lack the physicality that allows us to express those physical realities in substantial material ways. They are wind and fire, Hebrews 1.7, we are earth and water, Psalm 103.14 and Leviticus 17.11. This order of being applies to every pattern. For instance, our low everyday service of God is gathered up into a higher Sunday service. And that Sunday service will be gathered up into our worship in heaven when we die. Our worship in heaven will be gathered up into our worship in the new heavens and the new earth when we are resurrected. And who knows if that is even the final step in the ladder. If we imagine this as a cosmic mountain, can we ever reach the peak if God is infinitely higher than we are? C.S. Lewis suspected not. Think of his vision of the true Narnia with mountains going ever higher or his view in Perilandra of the last things being merely a true beginning after a false start. But just as everything gathers upward, so also everything flows downward. Man is not the lowest point, 
He is, in fact, the very middle, the intermediary between the insubstantial heavens and the substantial earth. Man is the symbol of God on earth, the physical expression of his spiritual reality. We are the point at which the visible most embodies the invisible. We are his image. And this gives us a fifth axiom. Axiom number five. Heaven and earth participate together in man. I want you to think of man first with a capital M, knowing that his purpose can only truly be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then I want you to think of man with a lowercase m, knowing that Christ is the second Adam, and that he finished what the first Adam started, achieved what Adam was made to do in the first place. Man is the generation, the offspring of heaven and earth. That's Genesis 2.4. He is the integration point that spans and connects and unites them both. He is capable of true magic, of gathering up all of both earth and heaven in such a way that they can participate in each other. Man's purpose is to bring heaven down to earth and earth up to heaven. And this is fulfilled in the work of Christ himself in which we covenantally participate. Which is why it is at the very center of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so also on earth. This is the task given to Adam to exercise rule on God's behalf. As in heaven, so also on earth. Completing the work that God began in the first six days of impressing the heavenly patterns onto the earthly cosmos. Man must take the immaterial and give it material form. He must take what is still waste and void here below and fill it with meaning from above. The fall introduced a great rupture into this order of being, a great separation and divide between heaven and earth at the point where they were supposed to be drawn together. Through Jesus Christ, of course, it is restored and redeemed. This is why scripture speaks of Christ as reconciling all things through his blood whether things on earth or things in heaven, Colossians 1.20. He is the new integration point for all of creation, the place where meaning can flow down into the physical world and where the expression of that meaning can be gathered up from the physical world. And this is why we find that history ends with heaven and earth becoming merged. In Revelation 21 verses 10, 11, and 22, we read, He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof. Cosmic meaning is expressed and exemplified and embodied at the mundane level, and the world becomes a physical host to spiritual patterns it is made to reflect. And as that reflection becomes purer, the distinction between heaven and earth becomes less and less certain until God is all in all. Axiom 6. Therefore, man must live liturgically. Given these axioms, there is one more that follows from it. If the physical form of things matters for their participation in spiritual patterns, and this goes all the way down, and if man is meant to order the physical realm to properly, fittingly participate in spiritual realities, then how we order everything in our lives matters for whether we are doing the work God made us for, rightly hosting heavenly patterns here on earth. Therefore, we have to learn to order the form of our lives to resonate with heavenly realities.
Which is really just to say, we have to learn to live liturgically. Liturgy is simply ordering the form of our actions to reflect what is happening in heaven. But as with all patterns, this repeats at lower levels. Liturgy is not just for the Lord's Day. It is for all of life. This sounds weird because we have desacralized the world. So we think of spirituality here on earth at only one level, the level of the church. We distinguish between secular and sacred. And so liturgy can only take place in our minds in the little sacred carve-out of the church on Sunday morning. But Paul tells us that everything we do is spiritual, which is why we read Romans 12 at the beginning of our podcast. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. The word there is latria, which is where the English word liturgy comes from. If we were to reform our view of life to match Paul's, we would begin to realize how unnatural, how out of bounds it is for anyone to do anything irreligiously. It is not that, for example, having dinner together is a religious act per se. Rather, having dinner together participates in a spiritual pattern, and acting out that spiritual pattern while also living as an enemy and rebel against the God in whom it originates is grotesque, it's unseemly and perverse. Man in his natural state, alienated from God, is a travesty. By nature, he images God and participates in his patterns, and yet simultaneously, by deed, he lies about who God is and defies his ways. It is only when we are brought back into a right relationship with God, when we are spiritually resurrected after the image of his Son, that we can properly participate in creation as he intended. So eating with believers means something different than eating with unbelievers, because the eating takes place within a redeemed realm. Meal sharing within the church is covenantally reconnected to God through Jesus, and can therefore properly participate in the spiritual pattern of partaking of one substance together in order to be built up into one substance. We are one body, for we partake of one loaf. But for this very reason, we are also instructed not to eat with someone who is living a lie about this covenantal reality. That's 1 Corinthians 5.11. Drawing someone into the pattern of mutual participation, when he is in fact alienated from us, defiles our own participation. It is unseemly and perverse. This is just one simple practical application of the liturgical pattern of life, which Paul gives us explicitly in Scripture. But by merit of the fact that he gives us that one, we have to conclude that there must be others that we are meant to discover for ourselves. We have an obligation to learn the patterns of heaven so that we may rightly participate in them. Why do so many Christians say grace before dinner? It's not because they truly understand heavenly patterns. Rather, it is because their traditions have been formed by people who did, people who extended the pattern of the Lord's Supper down into their everyday lives. In 1 Corinthians 11.23-26, we read, The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do unto my remembrance. Axiom 7. To live liturgically, we must study both man and scripture. In other words, we must discern the basic patterns that God built into us and seek out their meaning. This involves studying them as they appear in ourselves and in human society and as they appear in the Bible and are illuminated by the word of God. 
What sorts of things are these? Well, we should start with the basics, with elemental fundamental symbols, which is what we're doing. The first two seasons, as I've said, are clothing and food, but there are also things like body and family and music and gardening and building and many others. These are the sorts of things that we're going to delve into. This podcast is not mine. I'm presenting these Keystone episodes because this content is properly theological and therefore it would be inappropriate for Smokey to be teaching it. But our seasonal episodes are ours. They are a fusion of my theological insights and Smokey's historical and cultural knowledge. It will be equal part doctrine and documentary. So if you enjoy listening to a good sermon on Leviticus or a good YouTube video on dressmaking in the 1700s, you will enjoy True Magic. And if you do enjoy it, please consider supporting the show by subscribing and becoming a paid member. It's a very inexpensive monthly cost for you, but with enough paid members, we can devote a lot more time to producing episodes. Paid members get early access to episodes, and they also get access to our Talkie Nonsense podcast, which is a lucky dip of crazy bonus episodes curated by Smokey from the mystery bag of cats that is our mutual brain. They also get the ability to comment and join community discussions, and of course, the warm glow of re-enchanting the world harder than... All of them are freeloading listeners, but really we love you all, and you should only become a paid member if you really believe in this podcast. If you want to become a paid member, just go to truemagic.nz, that's truemagic.nz because we are in New Zealand, NZ, and enter your email address and follow your nose. Until next time, continue your spiritual service to the Lord Jesus by presenting your body a living sacrifice, seeking to order the form of your life according to the spiritual patterns that he has revealed.